Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, Finney by Frank Lilly Pollock, first published in the Argosy magazine in, I believe, June 1906. And uh, we picked it up in either Famous Fantastic Mysteries or in Fantastic Novels in the 1940s. Um, an end of the world short story, kind of, right? Yeah. Um, I found this because I'm looking for early end of the world stories <laughs> and I like end of the world stories. Um, I don't know how well known it is, uh, other than, you know, having been republished in the forties, it has its own Wikipedia entry, which is a, a, a good sign now. But I, I was I want to compare this story to another by uh, one of my favorite authors. But before we do that, maybe we should uh, explain the plot a little bit. Uh, please do. Okay. All right. Um, this is a I think it's a hard science fiction story. It's set in uh, the early twenty or mid twentieth century, um, long after it was uh, or long after it was published set about maybe 50 years after it's published it's hard to say um so they're living in new york and there's a couple of uh graduate students and a professor in a tower of columbia university probably a building that doesn't actually exist and they have a telescope trained on the sky where they've been waiting for the past few weeks for a new star to appear in the sky uh, it's um, kind of a party scene down in the streets, and then the star appears, and things start to go wrong. <laughs> um, that's about what I would say is happening in this story. How about you, Eric? Well, um, you're right. They look down in the streets. Things are going wrong. This is uh, th- the appearance of the star has apparently been much anticipated. Mm-hmm. Part of the the hardness of the SF, the the discussion of how science works and how it makes predictions involves a narrator telling us that these predictions were off, you know, that the astronomers were trying to do this and figure out that. uh, But they were they were off. And uh, so we get a lot of. social detail. There are people on every street corner in every civilized country in the globe who for a nickel will give you a chance to look up at the sky through the telescope they've set up on the corner. So people are making money out of the anticipation of this astronomical phenomenon, the appearance of a new, presumably incredibly hot star. Uh, But on the other hand, the science doesn't work very well. And so there's the question in the popular press about astronomers crying wolf and should science be trusted at all? There are a lot of then uh, sociological and psychological implications uh, that the story has interwoven with uh, the notion of it being uh, hard, that is uh, calculable SF. But I got to ask, um, how do you know they're graduate students? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are four characters. Um, one of them, Eastwood, is an assistant professor of physics at, in, at Columbia. 
One of them, Miss Wardour, who is also named Grace, which may have to do with the, the biblical aspects of this final uh, apocalypse. Uh, uh, Miss Wardour just happens to um, to live in the same building that this guy lives in, and that is Eastwood, and uh, she works uh, in the physics department. So she, he's invited her uh, to come along. She's really involved in the Art Students League, um, which is a famous institution in Manhattan. Uh, so she's sort of brains and beauty, although she's terribly shy. There's a whole romance thing going on. He knows that she probably has brains because she reads deep books. He's mm-hmm. seen on public transit reading deep books because they start out, you know, using the same subway since they live in the same building. Mm-hmm. And then he's got these friends, um, the Davises. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Davis are young folks, but um, I'm, I, one of them is a graduate student. Uh, I think I think Ms. Wardour is a graduate student. Um, she is. Uh, I I would assume so. Um, we're making. She is a, definitely a student. I thought she was a secretary in the physics department and a student at the Art Students League. Uh, well, students at the Art Students League is a student, no? Yeah, yeah, but she's not a graduate student. She's just. I mean, they don't have graduate programs. Well, we've at the got Art we've got an assistant professor who is a graduate student in the se- in the sense that he's graduated. He is. Um, and yet he's not a full professor. So I'm making kind of a hybrid uh, idea. I, I I'm participating okay, well, it, it, in the story, Eric. I see. Because okay. <laughs> in, the U, in the U.S. system, an assistant professor is not a graduate student. I, I hear what you're saying. But this is in yeah. the future. <laughs> One of the things well, that's important tell, about this story tell me, is – Tell me about that future, Jesse. That's, that's an interesting issue when everyone reads a story set in the future. Mm-hmm. That in fact is in the past of the lives of the readers. It's very, it's very interesting because this is um, this is an incredibly modern story in many respects, an incredibly old-fashioned story in many respects, and also an incredibly on-topic story for when it was published. Um, so <laughs> some of the 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 resentment that we just get in one or two lines about about having. Uh, being called a professor and yet not being actually a professor that is a very modern problem i mean it may have been a problem at the time but uh i i know that a lot of uh universities are in flux now with uh, a lot of associate professors and such so there's that um it's definitely set in the future because there are some discoveries in the past uh in this story that are not in the present of the 1906 publication um so they've been waiting for 25 years for something to occur it's finally supposed to have been here it's a little late there's that there's some technology in here that is uh real technology in a certain sense but probably wasn't at the time and i think that that all plays into uh some of the power of the story but the 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 publication itself the the romance aspect is almost incredibly old-fashioned. It's very much, um, it, all, it almost doesn't fit with the story, if you know what I mean. I do. There's a, maybe we could take this a thread at a time. Sure. Because the, the issue that you're raising is the, uh, the degree to which the threads are entwined in an aesthetically uh, 
unifying way. Uh, and I'm with you. I have a feeling that uh, eh, there's at least two different uh, oxes that uh, that Pollock is trying to gore here. And I'm not sure the oxen are yoked properly together. <laughs> no. Um, in, in the hard SF uh, domain, uh, which occupies the bulk of the story, mm-hmm. although neither the beginning nor the end, the right. beginning and the end both have the girl in it. Um, but the, 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 the bulk of the story has to do with the hard SF. The argument is that uh, we have discovered, speaking in 1906, we have discovered, our third person narrator is telling us, that... Uh, the Earth actually revolves around the moon, uh, around the sun. The the uh, the moon revolves around the Earth. Everything revolves around something else. Uh, but this couldn't go on indefinitely. Mm-hmm. You would be able to see that that there is such a thing as uh, a nebula, and the nebula, you know, spins itself around, and that's what the the Milky Way galaxy is. Uh, the thing is that in 1906, people. Although the the idea of what we have come to call galaxies had been proposed, uh, astronomy actually did not know Mm -hmm. that there were such things as other galaxies. They didn't know that the Milky Way was a galaxy and we were in it. And the Andromeda Nebula was another galaxy. Mm -hmm. Uh, they They didn't know that. And that was not settled definitively to the satisfaction of astronomers until the 1920s. Although it was going all the way back to uh, William Herschel, that people that he was the first to recognize that the the nebulas from the Greek word for cloud um, actually could be resolved into individual stars. Uh, But he didn't. I mean, he just sort of thought stars just kept on going all all the way out there. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, this really is looking at some then known scientific ideas. And what is suggested is that just as the moon rotates around the earth and the earth around the sun, the sun must be rotating around something else at the the center of all of our stars. And, and we see other stars and you can't go on forever because if you're going to rotate around stuff, you have to have something that's not rotating in the middle as it were. And by calculating deviations of this and that stellar object, the story asks us to believe that it has been calculated that that particular object, which must be denser and hotter than any other star because it's bigger and the size of a star, presumably the way this is written, Mm -hmm. um, tells us it's heat. This thing has got to be there. We know it's there because we see the motions of stuff. However, its light has not yet reached us. So they know that the speed of light is, is a limit. It's not instantaneous. It's got a speed. And uh, somehow they have figured all of this out, which, of course, doesn't make a lot of good scientific sense, because if you can see the movements of the things that it's affecting, <laughs> then obviously um, you can see those stars and their light has gotten here. So anyway, that, but, that's only obvious. I, I want to point this out because I did a lot of research on this. It's, it's really easy to know, you know what we know now. Because we're in our time. But it's very hard to know what certain people knew at certain times in the past. You know, when did skyscrapers start start 
getting built. Well, we have a range, right? And what technically is a skyscraper or whatever. In this case, um, this is a very on-topic story because this is the year the year after Einstein comes up with special relativity, which is basically where we get the idea of of what makes this story wrong. What makes this story wrong is, as in impossible, other than the fact that they don't have galaxies and they don't know that there's a Big Bang probably that, you know, has a somewhat infinite universe, if not a completely infinite universe that we actually have. But that what gets this story wrong is that they don't know that gravitation has the same speed as a light in a vacuum. And so if this Professor Bernier, who's mentioned uh, very early on in the story with his theory of, you know, the, this progression of ro rotations, not everything is just rotating randomly, it's all rotating around a central body, that, if that sun exists, and they can see that by observation, which is what we must accept if all the, if everybody is out in the streets pointing their telescopes up at the sky, something that is expected for 25 years, that the gravitation was faster than the speed of light. We know that is not the case. But if that was the case, uh, then this story would be perfectly logical. And that's what makes it good hard SF, even though it's completely wrong, right? It followed a certain set of rules that if, that were pretty much accepted and not well, uh, and not known to be wrong until probably when it was republished in the 40s. So, even though, yeah, it's a completely wrong story in a certain sense, it was completely on topic and correct, at least as a possibility, if the theories were correct back then, that, yeah, you could have this object in the sky that you could detect by the motion of planets, but not see. And that the catching up of light, which does have a speed, would take a, a certain amount of time that could be calculable if you knew the speed of light. So th that's why this is a still powerful story for me, not because of the romance aspect. And I think I think it's very cool that um, this uh, Pollock guy <laughs> managed to make such a, a really good hard SF story out of out of what was pretty much the science of, the, of physics at the time. Well, one of the uh, the impressive facts to the to the layman about astronomy in those days uh, again as you say it's, it looks different to us now but in those days one of the things that was really astonishing was the by those days i mean 1906 was the discoveries of uh, neptune and uranus which had both been discovered by looking at perturbations in the orbits of the planets that were closer to the sun. Mm -hmm. First Neptune and then Uranus. And so um, the idea that you could look at things and see that they move differently than you had expected could lead to a discovery was in fact uh, a prominent it was famous it was lauded. In fact people began looking for planet X uh, by looking at perturbations in the orbit of Uranus. And eventually, uh, when people discovered Pluto, which didn't happen until about 1930, um, they thought they had found Planet X, although nowadays we think that that may be a separate discovery altogether and that Planet X 
never have existed at all. It was a, an artifact of the measurement systems. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you could look at these things and find them by what you couldn't see, that was that was there. And it was important. I'm agreeing with you completely here, Jesse. What was different, though, is that to not see a star uh, meant you weren't seeing the light. That's right. Whereas to not see a planet, well, of course, because planets don't give off light. So you have to decide to look at look for where they are to see if you can find something else like reflected light. And so using the speed of light to say, aha, there's this other thing. Why can't we see it then? Well, it's got to be that it took too long to get here. I am not at all convinced that Pollock, uh, who my guess is pretty much no layman were reading Einstein's three famous 1905 papers. But um, I don't believe that Pollock was thinking gravity is instantaneous, that light uh, takes time to travel. Uh, the, we know light takes time to travel from the 19th century already. Um, and there was always this question about um, motion at a distance, you know, force mm -hmm. being occupied. So that's great. But I don't but it was it was debatable. I don't know yeah. that it was uh, you're, you're, science. You're right. But I, I do want to point out that, you know, the, the recent, very, very recent, I mean, was it this year or late last year, detection of gravitational waves for the first time um, is actually confirming Einstein's thesis that oh, yeah. gravitation isn't instantaneous. Right. That it does. The thing is, is we did know that light had a speed, but we didn't necessarily know that gravitation had a speed other than an infinite. Uh, well, an we infinite. knew theoretically, but we I did. agree with you completely. In 1906, Pollock was unlikely to know that that had been proposed, much less to have decided that it was right. And there's no so, way to completely disconfirm this story until we have. Uh, that uh, final revel, well, hopefully f correct assumption that we've detected gravitational waves, which is, well, is a thing, right? It, that we didn't know that it necessarily was. We've been looking for it for decades. Well, you know, there. I understand what you're saying, and I, I think it's important for us to keep all of that in mind. It's part of what makes the story interesting as an historical a document, mm -hmm. which gives us a certain pleasurable exercise as readers here in the in, in our period. I think it's also important to recognize, though, that most SF, even hard SF, typically pushes beyond what we really know. Uh, um, so, for example, part of the, the hard SF argument here that everything that rotates rotates around something else which is still in relation to it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there must be some large, huge thing that is still in relation to everything else in the universe rotating around it. Uh, actually, that argument makes no sense at all. Yeah, you're right. You, you, may, you may want to say it, but yeah, exactly. So what? <laughs> you know. And of course, now we know that that's not the case. Um, but as as early as as late as uh, as as my youth, uh, I remember when I was reading about astronomy, <clears throat> there was a serious debate between a so-called steady state theory of the universe. Mm -hmm. The Big Bang theory of the universe. Now everybody agrees uh, it's the Big Bang, but the notion that in fact the universe just you know oscillates, goes up, gets bigger, and, you know attenuates, slows down, and then goes back, and as it gets back, it heats up and goes back out again. And, you know that oscillating uh, steady state theory of the universe has been uh, abandoned, but 
years after the reprints of this story. So Mm -hmm. this is a great argument, a great uh, historical document. On the other hand, like so much SF, it's it's an historical document in science that deals with other things. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the social issues. I mean, that Professor Bernier you talk about, um, we're told that he proposed his theory about the limited universe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 40 years earlier, 40 years, oh gosh, 40 years in the wilderness, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are told that our main characters are awaiting the onset of this new sun in a building at the physics building at Columbia University, which is about 12 stories high. Right. And in fact, because the calculations are off, the night we're looking at is the night they've been waiting for. And it is the 12th night that they have waited for it. You know, I mean, these 12s are not random numbers. These 40s are not random numbers. The end of the world, when I called it apocalyptic, you know, we've seen the end of the world in other kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. Um, The best story that has the end of the world in it, or certainly the one that has moved the most people um, for the most part of their lives is the Bible. And that one, pretty close to the beginning, after you get a star, you get a, a man and a woman. And this story begins, in fact, with a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really a very odd kind of uh, sexism. This is the other thread, the, the, the sort of... Uh, confused feminism that runs through this now this uh, story mm-hmm. it begins the whole story begins i'm getting tired complained davis lounging in the window of the physics building and sleepy it's after 11 o'clock this makes the fourth night i've sat up to see your new star and it'll be the last why the thing was built to appear three weeks ago are you tired miss wardour asked eastwood and the girl glanced up with a quick flush and a negative murmur Eastwood made the reflection anew that she certainly was painfully shy. She was almost as plain as she was shy, though her hair had an unusual beauty of its own, fine as silk and colored like palest flame. Now, obviously, you know, we're supposed to understand already that he's seeing her as a physical object. He's commenting on her physical attractiveness. And although He at least is thinking that she's not all that attractive. He can't help but realize that he is drawn to this flame. And flame is what we're worried about in this Mm -hmm. story of the overheating of the world. And at the end, um, in fact, he looks at her and sees her flame-like hair again. Um, She is uh, a smart cookie, right? She reads these deep books and so on. And, uh, And yet, when we get to the end, we get to the end, she's the one who brings sex back in, right? She has, uh, explains what's going wrong, that there will, despite what Eastwood says, well, we could hide in the basement, we can do this. She, she explains it's not going to work after we've had cyclones and, and all kinds of terrible things and heat and hot and people bursting spontaneously into flame on the street. Um, so th- they've hidden in a basement. He says, well, we can stay here. And then tomorrow, and he says, no, you know, she says, it's not going to work. You know, it's, we, we barely survived this. We can't survive day after day of, of that sun in the sky. And it says then on the last page of the story, she seemed to have taken the intellectual initiative and spoke with an assumption of authority, 
that amazed him. <laughs> so for a second there, I kind of think, hmm, there's a proto-feminism here. There's mm-hmm. something that the narrator is realizing that, you know, a woman could actually be smarter than a man. A man could get carried away by his emotions, is desperate to survive. But the woman who reads the deep books and whom he has dismissed as not sufficiently good looking, <laughs> you know, right? But then, and this is the end of the whole story, so I'd like to read it and then, mm-hmm. you know, we can talk about it. Kiss me, she whispered suddenly, throwing, because they know they're going to die. Kiss me, she whispered suddenly, throwing her arms around his neck. He could feel her trembling. Say you love me, hold me in your arms. There is only an hour. Don't be afraid. Try to face it bravely, stammered Eastwood. I don't fear it, not death, but I have never lived. I have always been timid and wretched and afraid, afraid to speak, and I've almost wished for suffering and misery or anything rather than to be stupid and dumb and dead the way I've always been. I've never dared to tell anyone what I was, what I wanted. I've been afraid all my life. But I'm not afraid now. I have never lived. I have never been happy. And now we must die together. It seemed to Eastwood the cry of the perishing world. He held her in his arms and kissed her wet, tremulous face that was strained to his dot, dot, dot across the page. And then spoken from some narrator who I have no idea where this narrator is. (laughs) The twilight was gone before they knew it. The sky was blue already with crimson flakes mounting to the zenith and the heat was growing once more intense. This is the end, Alice, said Eastwood, and his voice trembled. She looked at him, her eyes shining with an unearthly softness and brilliancy and turned her face to the east. There, in crimson and orange, flamed the last dawn that human eyes would ever see mm-hmm. so i'm figuring in the dot 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 they got it on <laughs> right i mean and her softened you know so she's smart she's actually good looking uh, good looking enough i'm sort of the marry and the librarian thing going on here she's clearly smarter than he is she takes more control than he does and finally you know isn't it wonderful she manages to uh, to have sex with this this <laughs> wrong-headed scientist what happened to the feminism my gosh well this suddenly became an historical document again yeah i mean it's funny this this i want to point out a couple of things um this story i've read this story before um not by pollock but by niven this is another there's a story called inconstant moon by larry niven i believe it's from 1971 and it it has the exact same premise other than it's a, a new star. It's our star that goes Nova. And so the physics are, are much better, but it has the same plot, too. There's a man and a woman, and the man and the woman need to spend time together uh, before the destruction of the Earth. Um, there's, a, 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 you know, some variations in plot. But this is a theme, uh, I think, that if you're thinking of biblical destruction um you're also thinking uh you know from genesis you're also thinking uh you know a a last man and a woman or a first man and a woman there's some symmetry there um i also want to point out 
um, that there's some very cool uh, and I believe um, interesting SF technology in here that I don't think was in existence at the time. But even if it was, it still fits quite nicely with our story, which is um, the physics building that they're in, 12 stories or approximately 12 stories tall, has, um, quote, an invention of the oil vibration cushion, which practically isolates the instrument rooms from the earth. This is a what we would now call a dampener. Um, sometimes they are uh, use use oil. Sometimes they're physical, um, but they allow the very recent technology of uh, at that time of skyscrapers to go higher and higher. Um, there there were buildings much taller than 12 stories, uh, even in New York uh, at the time the story was written. But it was a problem of building, and we still have this problem. If if as you build higher the problem of vibration causes problems. And of course, this is a story of the destruction of a whole city. One of the very striking scenes um, in this story, and it is a very good story for striking scenes, um, is the scene of the people looking out the window and seeing the harbor full of, um, I guess, warships firing cannon into an approaching tornado to, to try and stop it. The futility of trying to destroy a tornado. Right. And, and when the building is hit by the, the tidal wave and the torrents and all that stuff, it is one of the few that survives at all. It, it is damaged and everybody on, on it is either killed or instantly or very soon after. And of course they don't survive the end of the story, but it's also it's it's almost like the science fiction escape of of you know the doomed earth and there's a a really cool paragraph that sort of makes me think that this this story it's almost like a we can escape our fate via technology even if we don't do it in this particular romance i want to read this paragraph the piled wreck of the building sheltered the two refugees from the direct rays of the new sun now almost overhead but not from the penetrating heat of the air and then this this very strange enigmatic line but the body will endure almost anything short of tearing asunder for a time at least it is the finer mechanism of the nerves that suffer most and to me this is a story about you know us today suffering global warming uh climate change the earth's going to be fine it's the finer mechanisms us that are going to suffer eventually you know the climate will figure it out it's it's had many such corrections in its very vast history and it's just the species that get wiped out and that's even in this story. He, there's a speculation somewhere, you know, something will survive somewhere deep down into the earth. Yeah, he says the seed of life will be left at any rate. Mm-hmm. And that is everything. Evolution will begin again. 
producing new types to suit the changed conditions. I only wish I could see what creatures will be here in a few thousand years. This is a wise story, even if it feels a little, you know, funny uh, with the with the the sort of awkward romantic element of a, a young woman who who regrets not having taken taking the first step earlier. But she does get her kiss and her sex, perhaps. <laughs> so it's not all bad. One one of the things that makes the story rise in my estimation, and it comes out of our conversation, Jesse, mm-hmm. is that trying to put these things together and beginning with the assumption that these threads, as incoherent as they may seem to be, actually could be coherent. There in crimson and orange flamed the last dawn that human eyes would ever see mm-hmm. is an argument that we should do what we can do while we can because we are all individually going to die. Yes. It doesn't have to be by cataclysm, but but Alice, Alice is uh, is too shy. She is too timid. But one of the reasons that she is t- shy and timid is that she has lived in a world where men felt they had more authority than they deserve. And this story undercuts man's authority, both in not having their calculations be correct, nor in being able to stop the tornadoes, uh, nor in being able to uh, prevent the destruction of human life on Earth. Whereas um, those who at least reach forward, um, they do something. Mm -hmm. And it's a story then not only about global warming, it can become a story for us. But there's always more to say. 